All right, hi everyone. Welcome to our next episode of Free Lunch. I am excited to be chatting with you today and of course joined by my co-host, the one and only Mr. Ken Gishinga. Ken, say hi to the people. Hi Kim, great to hear from you. It's a great Thursday and I'm looking forward to a wonderful episode of Free Lunch as we build up from what was a very interesting conversation last week on um, MSMEs. I totally I agree with you. That conversation was really powerful and I really liked the feedback that we got from the MSMEs and you know it, it just goes to show that there's nothing you know it's it's one thing for policies to be enacted but then uh, how individuals how households how businesses are coping at the end of the day is is incredibly important to what comes next especially as we are envisioning turnaround strategies and revamping economies during these difficult times that we are in absolutely i think uh, one of the reason maybe it, it caught a lot of interest is because SMEs um, really contribute uh, such a big chunk of our GDP and almost everybody knows um, somebody within their network who is within within the SMEs um, segment. But one thing that maybe mm-hmm. last week we quite didn't define, it's, it's, a, it's one of those words that are broadly used and um, it's almost uh, like that economics book by Adam Smith, where <laughs> everybody right. quotes Nobody's nobody's read right, <laughs> the wealth of nations. Correct, and everybody uses the word SMEs. And I just wanted to hear what you what's your definition of uh, it? Just because SME nowadays it's more MSME, right? I mean, it's such a good question, and you know, I even wonder, given everything we've seen now, whether we are really talking about MSME or MMSME, you know, like the micro of the micro, small and medium-sized enterprises. But yes, I think this, these are people who are, you know, not necessarily formally employed, running their own businesses. They might not be registered. And so in Kenya, there are about, or at least based on the latest statistics, as many as 6 million MSMEs who most of whom are unlicensed and operating at the household level but for me i think of your ordinary informal person on the street who's running a business that employs less than 10 people likely doing petty retail or doing odd jobs it reminds me of the height of our primary school experience and how we learned about small and sole entrepreneurs small Right. You know, that, that, that sole proprietor, maybe a small partnership and largely relying on family income or also, sorry, family labor. So, you know, your, your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters are contributing to the business. And oftentimes profit might not be the, the strongest uh, component of the business. It's mainly a way to keep people employed and engaged in some meaningful activity. But Ken, you're the economist here. When SMEs or the concept of MSME comes to mind, what 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 do you think about? I think that's a great background that you, uh, you've given. I've interacted with this phrase um, in different um, sectors. In my previous life, I was in the banking sector, yeah. And for uh, for them, it was the the size of the loans mm. that you would qualify for and the the, the revenue that right. you generate as a business. You find most banks would have 
an SME department, a corporate department. So right. it was really tied to the revenues, your cash flows, how big ticket loans you would. Uh, but uh, from a policy perspective, and this is where the government is, uh, plays a big role, and yeah. there was an SME report that was uh, last done in 2016. Yeah. And they have an interesting definition where it's really about the number of people. Yeah. Um, so for them, uh, a micro enterprise would be um, something uh, between one and 10 people. Mm. It's an entity that hires between one and 10 people. What they call small business would be between um, 11 and 49 mm -hmm. uh, people then the medium part would be like from about 50 um, to uh, 99. And yeah. I thought that was an interesting uh, definition because in some other countries, they uh, consider anything less than 250 employees yeah. to be an SME. But in Kenya, when you talk about micro, it's really from the one to 10 person. And surprisingly, that accounts for 92% yeah. when you take the whole MSME bucket. 92% yeah. are those micros of less than 10 uh, people, uh, about 7% are in those small entities between 11 and 49 and almost a point one <laughs> yeah. that's above that. So it, it shows you, even as we say MSME, we are yeah. overwhelmingly skewed towards the micro, yeah. less than 10 people types uh, of businesses. Got you. I know without making this too philosophical, I even wonder whether because of COVID, some of these definitions really need to change, right? And maybe we need to define industries based on their level of resilience. Because, you know, you might be a one to five person company and you're incredibly resilient that calling you right. an MSME it just feels like a slap in the face. Whereas, you know, a 51 to 100 size MS, uh, SME, that's not very liquid uh, or didn't manage to go through COVID successfully. You know, it, it, it feels like maybe that's less, that's less important at that point. I wonder whether COVID will force us to rethink about these definitions and, you know, really be or exact, you know, some sort of clear waiting around this issue of resilience because i would argue the more resilient you are the you you really should have a stronger you should really be, th be thought about differently from from you know from your peers but nonetheless that could be a very interesting conversation for another time but i'm curious if we think about like the credit guarantee scheme so we have that 30 million we have that 30 million allocation that the government uh, $30 million that the government allocated towards this credit guarantee scheme to de-risk lending for MSMEs and also to support MSMEs to access credit during this period. I know we've had co previous conversations on whether this was successful, whether this is sufficient, whether as a stimulus package this is sufficient. But Kieran, I'm curious for your thoughts around the, the idea of this scheme and what does it mean for the ordinary MSME? Last week we talked about, you know, maybe not all the MSMEs will access, but let's talk about today. Like if they actually do access, what does that mean for them? What does that mean for their businesses? What are the implications uh, of this credit, guarantee, this credit guarantee scheme that's in place? Well, indeed, I think, uh, Kim, that's a very valid question. And um, I think 
what's making this scenario unique is uh, we are going through a very tough macroeconomic um, situation right now yeah. where we don't have much liquidity in the economy and there isn't much going on. Yeah. And I think even prior to this episode, one of the things that uh, you had alluded to mm. was, is there a strong demand in the economy, even if these MSMEs would be able to reopen, assuming next week everything is open, is yeah. there a strong demand? And, and that's what I've always said, first of all, we need to have a very strong macro stimulus, a monetary stimulus across the economy to get people buying and selling and transacting. Um, then the SMEs now can sort of be able to tap into the credit scheme, credit guarantee scheme. Because my my fear is, assuming we reopen next week and yeah. all these uh, nice little restaurants open up, uh, they might not have clients because people don't have the purchasing power. A lot of people have gone three months without being paid an income. They can't afford rent. They can't afford food. They can't service their loans. So expecting that our businesses will open their doors next week and people will come running in because of pent-up demand, yeah. I think that's almost a bit naive. So I think there's a macro part that has to be addressed. But when it comes specifically to the mm. MSMEs, um, definitely it will have to be sector by sector uh, yeah. because some sectors have, um, have, like hospitality and tourism, have taken a much, much greater hit and will maybe take a longer time to rebound um, than other sectors like ICT, which have kind of almost been thriving uh, during um, the, 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 the COVID case. So I think it's really partnering with the banks. And I think banks oh. would be an ideal partner because it's very difficult for gov government to be able to do credit scoring and stuff. So if they can sort of partner with the banks, almost similar to the way we saw World Bank lending to Equity Bank, Mm. on that lending. I think that might be sort of a more strategic way. But I think back to the first thing is, is there strong demand, first of all, yeah. uh, for these businesses to be able to repay back these loans? You know, it's such a good point because when you talk about demand, you know, you're talking about the ability for people to go out and exercise agency, consume goods and services. And from my perspective, I start thinking about behavior change. And I think the last couple of months, you know, the government has really hammered on this need for us to change behavior, to exercise social distancing, let's flatten the coronavirus curve, let's make sure we can protect each other. And so all those raft of measures that were initiated, you know, for example, you know, and all those raft of measures initiated have helped to keep the flat, uh, to keep the curve flattened. Uh, to the extent to which they can, but those that has had a significant blow on on demand, right? So you're totally right, and I agree with you that there's we're in a very weird slippery slope in that the MSMEs and SMEs more broadly were surviving, and and even one wonders how well they were doing. So you know some statistics that I looked at suggested that you know in 2018 less than 20 percent of all loans actually went to MSMEs. But somehow they were inching along. And so COVID came and so more or less extinguished that little budding flame that was, that was gone. And so now we're coming back and saying, okay, here's a credit guarantee scheme, $30 million, MSMEs can access. However, you must be registered by either by a county government someplace. You must have a valid business permit or trade license. 
and that you know helps to address the issue of unlocking capital but like you rightly said people already now are you know cognizant or at least have been educated and forced to think about you know working from home social distancing keeping away from crowded areas etc not necessarily eating in public places which then that has sort of created and shifted how people are demanding services of course you would argue that maybe if you're talking about restaurants you know there's the opportunity for deliveries but nonetheless not every restaurant can afford that can have access to that and you know if you think about the other MSMEs or the other businesses that fall into this MSME category like the juakali sector or the informal sector you know they've not had the luxury of working from home they require people to show up your bait your vegetable seller your grocery seller requires you to come out of your house and go and purchase you know so like the entrepreneurs talked about last week we really need to think about how we support them but i also feel like even the great guarantee scheme if you discount the demand issue if you assume that even the demand would spring back because people have gone through quarantine fatigue and they actually want to go out and be about their business can this supply of 30 million dollars into this credit guarantee scheme that's been injected is that going to reach the smallest msmes and you know do they actually qualify do do these 6 million unlicensed msmes want to automatically become licensed so that they can go after this credit guarantee scheme or are there other things that are holding them back you know kim you've touched on a very powerful point on our behavioral change mm. and i think this is an area where you're an expert and maybe Uh, you can be able to expound on this more but mm. uh, you've been able to touch on two important things there is what you call aggregate demand and this mm. is really tied to how much uh, money is in your pockets mm. uh, but there's also behavioral change so there'll be some people who they haven't lost their job they haven't lost a salary but their behavior has just changed yeah so they might not demand so when one of the most common SMEs is in the motor vehicle industry where you have garages yeah where that uh garage guy who comes and fixes your car yeah so you realize most people are working from home so I'm assuming your car needed to go for servicing yeah a, a lot more, a lot of people might say uh well I can postpone it to next month after all I'm working from home right um, and 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 I'm not using actually I've been using Uber Um, yeah. quite 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 a lot so you'll find people who yes they're not even affected in terms of like monetary demand mm. but their behavior has just changed so yeah. they're also demanding less so you you realize in this bucket called demand there's a monetary part and there's yeah. a behavioral part and, and 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 maybe you can speak to more of those behavioral changes you expect yeah. no absolutely and I, and i think you know traditional economy traditional economics sort of lumps these things into useful buckets for us so you know there's everything to do with you know where we started this conversation with people having lost jobs and people having been affected by covid there's certainly a strong substitution effect so people are like okay or well, let's start off, let's first start off with the income effect right so i've lost my income i'm no longer able to afford uh, the, the normal goods and the normal basket of goods and services so i need to downgrade so that also then forces you to create new behaviors around coping 
So you will then start having, you know, substitution effects showing up. So you'll likely start saying, okay, you know what, let me not eat three times a day, let me eat once a day. So that also affects uh, demand at an aggregate level. Let me not go spend outside, uh, outside my home. Let me actually stay home. Let me consume uh, the little food that I have in the house versus go out and order. And, and of course, on the flip side of that, you have people who maybe have not been as affected and they're saying because of the crisis, let me stay home and order as opposed to cook. So that also shifts the, the demand for goods and services in a slightly different way. So I think some segmentation there is certainly important to understand what individuals, what individual decision-making is looking like, but certainly a whole bunch of drivers come into play. So the idea of, you know, the status quo bias comes in. If it's all of a sudden, it's a cool and aspirational thing for us to order in uh, because we can afford the takeout. You know, if you have enough people doing that and that creates a good enough social norm, folks will start doing that. But I think if you look at the average uh, Kenyan and below, if you look at folks who are really the informal mm -hmm. sector who are struggling uh, to make things work, to make uh, and to put food on the table, you know there is you know they are facing different challenges. So for them, they're substituting between paying rent and paying school fees and you know putting food on the table. So that's also shifting household demand in in very interesting and unpredictable ways. And, and, you know, like you said, like the small businesses are definitely facing these huge effects. It's funny you talked about the, the garage examples. I know, for example, I've been delaying my fixing of the car, largely because I'm saying, okay, you know what, um, the car can survive a little bit longer. You know, we haven't been traveling as much or as far. And so, you know, you, you, you sort of rationalize, at least I'm rationalizing in my mind and saying, okay, you know what, the car can survive, it can hang in there for a little bit longer, but perhaps there, are, there actually are more pressing immediate concerns. So, you know, the bigger companies can survive those shifts in demand and those substitution effects that individuals are making, but, you know, certainly the smaller MSMEs will, will face challenges and, you know, the interesting thing about this credit guarantee scheme, to be honest, is the fact that if you said, if somehow we could change the, the behavior of MSMEs to actually go get licensed, you know, there's an opportunity for them to engage. But again, if you think of, you know, nearly 6 million MSMEs, divide that by uh, $30 million, assuming all of that goes through, that could be about, what, $5 million per MSME. Then the question is, are all those MSMEs accessible and, and able to access that credit because of the nature of their business, because of their track history? Remember, many of these are operating at a household level. So it could be tricky, especially if they don't have even the assets to be able to show up and, and support their activities. I, I, I worry that there's still going to be an access issue there. There's going to be a gap there. And you know, like one of our rightful, one of our MSMEs uh, last week rightfully mentioned, the there is likely to be gaps in how well this policy will reach the the, the most deserving or the most urgent of cases. Right. Um, when when if the government plans to partner with commercial banks mm. uh, to apply this credit guarantee scheme, obviously it will be the banks will. 
the banks the banks will be able to sort of like determine um, what are the typical loan amounts yeah. um, that would be required. And when I read about the deal between the World Bank and Equity Bank, yeah. I saw the loan tickets would go from anywhere from maybe a million to almost 300 million now. I need to check the actual numbers. Mm. Uh, but as you say, there's, there's an income effect and there's a substitution effect playing. And the one can only ask, uh, the credit managers, the credit managers and the credit analysts, mm. um, how will they be able to, assuming you have 10 of these SMEs coming to you, how will you be able to sort of measure how businesses will be impacted by the substitution effect? Would you say mm. that, um, Kim, your, your business is a big substitution effect that will disrupt your business? Right. So unfortunately, I can't lend you amount of money or can, will somebody, do they have their skills to be able to say uh, that your, the demand for your good, goods or your service is perfectly inelastic? So we do know people will come and repay you. So I don't In know fact, if those credit managers have that toolkit to be able to sort of um, assess, assess this. I love it. And you're asking, you know, all of the right questions. And when I think about it, to be honest, you know, your background was in a bank, a traditional bank, retail banking experience. I doubled a little bit within the microfinance sector and, you know, the same questions, you know, would sort of cut through. And my experience within the micro space is that, you know, if you had, let's say $30 million to disburse, you would be trying to think, how do I give as many businesses a share of this money? So you're trying to think about how do you cut it and disburse that amount of money to as many people as you can. So of course, you're still trying to think about the income and substitution effects from all of these different uh, entities that you will be lending to. But you know, I always sort of felt like the micro the, the smaller lending institutions had a stronger handle on trying to divvy up the pie across as many people because of the profitability and hedging risk. The bigger banks would, of course, rather want to say, okay, you know what, I'm not going to manage, you know, 10,000 relationships. Let me manage, you know, 100 relationships, but then give them a bigger size of the chunk. So then I feel mm. like unless then the banks also make a concerted effort, it's a lot easier. If I'm a credit officer, my incentive is to disburse the $30 million, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if I have KPIs for how many individuals I give the money to. Suddenly, I know I have a, a, KPI, a KPI on like how much of this money I do disperse. So if I can come and find an off-taker who will take $27 million right off the bat, I'm like, super, awesome. Take it and go, right? Whereas, and that of course then would not likely have very strong mainstreaming effects for your smaller MSME. So as much as then the solution would be there, if assuming all the 6 million MSMEs could actually get convert to being licensed, you know, I worry that they would still face another challenge, which is again, very behavioral that you know status quo prevails i'd rather give it to the big boys i know them i trust them i have a relationship with them you are small you're new why take a risk and i'm also risk averse so i can imagine a credit officer saying 
uh, no, let me give it to a more a stronger business. Let me appraise this business that has longer track history. And so, and so you know, that, that could be a very different dynamic. But to the point that you made, I mean, the bank that you cited is, you know, also has a very strong pro-poor bias track record. So likely there are ways once those funds land within the system, they'll, they'll find ways to, to allocate it across, you know, your big firms, your smaller firms, et cetera. But I still worry that even still, those small, small firms, those 6 million MSMEs that are operating at the household level would be scared about formalizing because there's, there's some advantage, if you will, to sitting in the shadows and not necessarily being visible to the exchequer. Even though the exchequer is slightly hoping, you know, one could argue the exchequer is slightly hoping that, you know, these MSMEs will want to get registered, want to become formalized, and then ultimately pay the 1% turnover tax. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think many of them will still uh, prefer to uh, operate in the fringes. Um, mm. They derive excessive benefits uh, when they do that. And the question of how do we incentivize them, but even without that part mm. of them being brought into the formal system, another thing that they might, many MSMEs worry about is uh, the subjectivity of yeah. the credit approval process. And I know one yeah. particular um, SME who told me he was applying for a loan for about 2 million shillings and uh, had a relationship with his bank for about um, three, four, five years. Yeah. And uh, they, de they, they declined his application. And then he went to the next bank down the street. Um, he not only did he get what he was looking for, they actually awarded him almost six million shillings, wow. uh, you know, and, yeah. and stuff. So I think uh, it shocks uh, that credit scoring today, uh, and, and I'm sure you have more insight in the credit process, mm. but it seems to me that even in 2020, it's a, it's a very subjective process. And I know we've talked about uh, behavioral monetary policy, yeah. uh, but is there some element of behavioral credit appraisal? I like what you've just said there because you're already, you know, you're touching on some very interesting notes that I observed when I visited some of our more retail bank or retail oriented banks in that, you know, there are some additional costs and penalties that are implied and applied because you're small in stature. So if you're a small organization, a small outfit, you're an MSME, you're a mom and pop business, five uh, employees or less, the service that you can access is at a mass market, right? So you'll walk to your branch, you'll sit on your chair, you'll have your credit officer and loan officer sitting opposite to you. And, you know, a conversation will be hashed out in public around your ability to repay your debt. And I remember all <laughs> eavesdropping into one of those conversations and I felt like this was so inappropriate because you literally can't be haggling here, you know, in, in full view and with everyone listening in to this conversation. And, you know, the MSME in that case was trying to apply for, it may have been even a 10,000, it was a $1,000 loan or $3,000 loan at the most. And, you know, the, he's getting a dress down from 
the loan officer telling him that look you don't quite qualify i see your account has not been in good standing there's an overdraft facility that you didn't quite meet so there's the dignity of the msme that's just eroded in this conversation and also then affects their confidence and their ability to exercise agency and then when you think about like the bigger boys who can access you know the prestige banking they can access you know the higher level you might even have a loan a relationship officer come to them to discuss their credit needs you know it's already a very different um ball game all of a sudden right like the the bigger businesses you know will have the ability to pay more to command more and also will get better attention but even as i say that there are you know a number of micro institutions that microfinance institutions that are you know have deployed their loan officers to go and have one-on-one -on -one conversations but you know sadly this this credit appraisal process as long as it's human um is there's some human involvement then it's then you open up the doors for biases to play in right so as much as even the micro loan officer will go out to talk to a small sme and try and explain to them their options that the 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 rates etc it's human the the individual will think you know what let me give more to a business that looks more stable that like you said maybe the elasticity of demand for their products will help them leverage and, and make their way safely through the crisis whereas the other business you know is more at risk and it might speak to something that we've talked about in probably in previous episodes of can you do this credit scoring business in in a more in a way that doesn't involve as much human intervention maybe we're talking about advanced blockchain technologies some, some machine learning techniques artificial intelligence coming into play and i was really excited because of that fact when you know digital lenders came up because the digital lender is appraising me not because they've seen me they like me not because there's you know an element of bias because i know the loan officer or i know the financial institution they're looking at my transaction history but then also and and ideally that that should be a fairly um unbiased process but of course you could argue that it's a human being that's written the algorithm so there are some implicit biases already in there but nonetheless you would imagine that would be a fairer system but then also for other reasons the digital lenders aren't also lending as much as they could during the crisis so the it's a bit of a double hammer that the more objective opportunities for the msmes to access credit in a way that wouldn't lower their dignity um, has also been taken away because of the crisis. Very, very, very interesting. And I wish even maybe next time we could have a couple of credit analysts maybe giving us one or two takes from um, the experience. I think it's a very fascinating thing that involves both economics and psychology mm. and, and, and even bias as you say, that is implied on that. So this is incredibly insightful for me too. Correct, correct. And you know, the other thing that you've just talked about there, and even as we try to wrap up this episode, is this idea of when you, I guess traditional banking has always had a little bit of implicit bias in there, right? So when you're walking up to your loan officer, you've cultivated a relationship with your loan officer. And so 
Whereas that's a boon, that's a benefit when it comes to you getting an appraisal. It also means mm-hmm. that he's less likely to do to cross every T and dot every I because you've developed a relationship. So then maybe what we're talking about is COVID is creating an experience where we do need to de-bias the credit appraisal system so that, mm-hmm. yes, the KYC requirements are important, but you know we still need to make sure that as much as there's KYC, you know who you're lending to, you, dis- you de-bias the individual and the decision to lend to them because of the fact that you have those relationships. Absolutely, absolutely true. And you know, you know, Kim, when we started on this episode, we talked about the definitions of SMEs. Mm. And I told you about the bank's definition that does with the, the loan size mm. or the government position that deals with the number of people. But surprisingly, one important dimension that I think nobody is paying attention to mm. has been the duration in which that entity has been in business. And yes. um, for me, even as a business owner, yeah. um, what I've noticed is the first four years is when your business model crystallizes. You almost meet almost yeah. four or five years before you crystallize your yeah. business model. Yeah. But banks tend to like lending to entities that already have an existing business model. Right. So I think the question we should have been asking is, mm. should this money be going to a commercial bank or should it be going into some venture capital? Because I think venture capital tends mm. to do much better with, with, with businesses that are still pivoting and right. evolving and, and, and that. And I think that's like from zero to five years. Exactly. Maybe from five years onwards, when you have a very consistent business model, banks do those very, very well. So I wish we could have an extra column in that criteria mm. that really talks about the duration because you'll have a business that has cash flow you'll have somebody who has a chemist and if yeah. you look at his uh, bank statements is cash flows but maybe the cash flows are coming from rentals or they're coming exactly. from other industries that are not related yet you're lending because you're seeing cash flows coming in and out i think there's a whole layer that there's a whole industry that is uh, very apparent in the U.S., but is mm. not yet very developed in Kenya. And I think that's the angel investors, the venture capital, the private equity. I think those tend to do much better with uh, small businesses that have an evolving, uh, that are still pivoting. You know, it's such an interesting conversation you've sparked on, and I think we probably should think about this for a future episode, which is, you know, what you're talking about has really been the reason why the Pago sector has really taken off. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, so Pago is built around this idea of you can pick an asset, a productive asset, ideally something that will light a few rooms, probably has an entertainment component so you can have TV in an off-grid home, and then you pay the solution over time. So you take a small deposit up front, you pay a small deposit up front, you get the solution, and then you repay it over time. And so because there's really been no tried and tested model for this, the main investors for this system have been angel investors. And that industry has completely scaled because angel investors, one, have been excited about the strong impact because these devices are reaching people who live in the last inch of the last mile. So 
they you know, are likely to be unserved by the national grid for years to come. And then also, you know, it has a really strong poor, poor uh, outcome because now you're, it means that these rural homes, kids can continue studying, they can learn, they, you know, they, they, they security, they can be productive, so earn an income. So those, those types of customers and those types of businesses haven't really been served by your traditional credit, but mainly by angel investors and that's scaled and taken off. Of course, though, one, you know, one challenge of those models has always been where, where is the value of the business? And of course, this might be a very interesting tangent, but you know, one, one, one ongoing criticism has been, is that Paygo company, are they an asset leasing company or are, they a, or are they a financier? And so they've also gotten into the bad books because they typically are lending at higher rates than ordinary. So, you know, what does that mean for the actual outcome for these low end homes uh, or low end consumers who are living in, the, in very far flung places? But I think um, the point is, you know, really well nailed in that what support is there for the MSMEs who've just started, who, you know, it takes a while for them to establish their business model. I mean, the credit guarantee scheme was ideally also helped, was also helped to make or to de-risk the big banks from uh, lending to these MSMEs. But you're absolutely right. Like for some of them, they may not make it or their business models may evolve over time, which, you know, I guess is also part of the problem and part of the concerns where when the exchequer, for example, is trying to introduce a 1% turnover tax to attract, you know, to attract, trying to make sure that these MSMEs attract a 1% turnover tax on their revenues, you know, you end up with the same problem. Who, what revenue are you taxing? Are you taxing the revenue that they're generating from sales or from rent? Because they're still trying to figure out what, what's their business model, what's sustainable, et cetera. But I guess, you know, no easy decisions, um, can be reached immediately in the short term, but we certainly have a scenario and an opportunity to try and address the issue if we can have a bit of a more holistic approach. I think I'm motivated by the fact that the potential is huge. Six million um, MSMEs are unlicensed. You know, there's, there's more that can be done surely to net some of them. Of the 1.5 or 1.6 million of those that are licensed, you know, how can we help them so that we are not stealing, if you will, their seed capital by taxing it, but helping them to reinvest it so that they get beyond that three-year, four-year hump. And then they actually have enough to, to graduate into SME and large taxpayer category so that then, you know, we're not looking at, you know, our tax revenues being at, you know, their five-year low, but we can en enable these small businesses to grow and for us to get out into out of the funding quagmire that we're in now. So Ken, we've been talking for ages and ages. Curious if you have a way to wrap this conversation up because it's really getting more and more interesting as we get into it. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, I, I, this is something that we can talk about um, for many episodes because it's such a dynamic um, industry with so many changes. Even when you talk about those new developments that are coming in, uh, right now. Then you have also the BBI proposal that is mm. proposing uh, tax breaks for the companies in their first um, five years. So you wonder if you're a recipient of this facility mm. and the BBI proposal goes through, 
do you just like stop paying? You know, it's right, <laughs> right. It's it's, <laughs> it's it's a it's a very very it's an interesting <laughs> space is that. But uh, right. definitely, I've always believed that the entrepreneur is the four factors of uh, production and economics: it's land, mm-hmm. labor, capital, and lastly, it's the entrepreneur who brings all these things together. Correct. If we can create a economic model where the entrepreneur is really at the center of it and right. really encouraging it, I think right. this would be something that would create great wealth for this country. So I look forward to seeing how this plan will be rolled out. Hopefully, next time we'll have some documentations to see maybe sure. uh, some things. I don't know if they plan to roll it out with banks or individually. Mm-hmm. So very, very interesting space to watch. Correct. Absolutely. And I think we can end it there. Looking forward to seeing how things uh, unfold in coming days. But uh, to our loyal podcast listeners, that has been our episode on the Curry Guarantee Scheme, $30 million that's been allocated to support MSMEs. You know, hopefully some of them will become included and support the net, uh, support driving uh, the uh, the country's goals of increasing tax revenue, but you know all of that remains to be seen. And whether or not the money is lent, I think there's a fundamental question. And Ken's talked about it on this idea of unlocking demand. Can monetary policy play a stronger role? So that's our time, people. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to having you on our next episode. Uh, Ken, take us away. Well, thank you so much, Kim, and thank you so much for our audience for your generous feedback. Um, always uh, willing to listen to your comments feel free to send us uh, through our social media handles your feedback any future topics you'd like us to talk about we are always uh, very agile to new topics uh, for me here i wish you a great weekend and uh, uh, keep safe and keep well